Welcome to the Milestone Church Podcast. Whether you are at home, on the road, or at work, we hope you find this message encouraging and helpful for your life. You can watch other messages just like this one on our website at milestonechurch.com slash messages. Hello, Milestone. so delighted to be here with Pastor Little and his lovely wife and uh, to have had the privilege of meeting them along with my daughter Priscilla and uh, to be able to be with you this evening. And um, y'all don't believe in COVID up here, do you? Because it's, (laughs) my goodness. I am so grateful for the invitation. Pastor Little called me. He asked if I believed in free speech. I said, yes. He said, come give one. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I am delighted for the privilege of being here. First time. What a beautiful campus that you have. And uh, uh, it's an honor. Uh, when Priscilla told me she had, she had been here and, uh, had, and then I was shown a picture uh, by your, your first lady when she was with my wife at a, at a gathering. And so uh, our journey does go back a little ways, although I was, I was a little bit evangelically ticked off when he told me that uh, he's been listening to me since he was a boy. <laughs> uh, I didn't think I looked like that old. Yeah, so, but uh, it, was, um, it was great to, to meet them and to be with you. Uh, here tonight, and so thank you for the invitation uh, to share with you. The story is told how some years ago, in Europe, there was a sanitarium, and they had to try to define when an inmate was cognitively able to be released because of the treatment that they had had and the time that they had gone through, were they cognitively able to now go into the general population from the sanitarium? And one of the crude ways in which they would try to ascertain that was to put the inmate in a closet, a janitor's closet, turn the water on in the sink and put a stopper in the sink and let the water overflow the basin onto the floor. They would give the inmate a mop and tell the inmate to mop up the mess that had been created by the water overflowing the bowl due to the stopper being in the sink. They would ask him to clean up the mess. The supervisor would then leave the janitor's closet for a few moments and then come back to see the progress of the inmate. If when the supervisor came back, the water was still running, the stopper was still in the sink and they were still mopping, they knew that person wasn't ready to go nowhere. 
because they had not developed the cognitive capacity to get to the root of the problem. They were trying to mop up a mess with the stopper still in the sink, which meant all the effort being put forth to resolve the problem was unresolvable because it never got to the root. So I thought I would spend my time with you this evening not focusing on mopping, not focusing all on all of the ways in which we can try to fix all of the things that are wrong in the world in which we are currently living and in particular the year that we have just come out of. As you in the name of your theme prepare to enter into 2021 and as you go through your time of fasting and prayer over these days, whatever it is that you are facing, I would like to ask you to drop the mop and join me at the stopper so that we can hopefully get to the root of the problem and not just spend an inordinate amount of time mopping. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, we have a series of verses that I would like to walk us through tonight expositionally, exegetically, and in exhortation related to what we have been facing in our lives and in our culture. We have come through and are currently in the midst of a series of multiple pandemics stack on top of one another. We began 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic. That would lead to the, the loss of the life of George Floyd, creating a racial pandemic. Coupled with that would be the economic pandemic caused by the medical pandemic, then that would lead into a political pandemic that still plagues us even at this moment. And on top of all of those cultural pandemics are our own pandemics. The things that we struggle with with ourselves, with our loved ones, with others. And so we are living in the context of multiple pandemics that are stacked. We are told in verse 3 of 2 Chronicles 15 that in those days there was no true God, no teaching priest, and no law. We're told in verse 5 that there was no peace to him who went in or to him who came out. 
We're told that nation rose up against nation and city rose up against city. We are told that there was great crisis and the consistent word that flowed through the crisis was the absenteeism of peace. In other words, people were living in the midst of conflict. We're told there was no peace to him who went in or to him who went out. So there was no personal peace and if you can't live with you, then you shouldn't find too big a problem that other folk can't live with you. There was no peace to him who went in or to him who came out. So when he or she left home, there was no peace. When they went back home, there was no peace. It says city was against city, so there was urban conflict, nation against nation, international conflict. In other words, in every direction you looked and in every level you looked, there was chaos, conflict, instability. But then we are hit with a phrase at the end of verse 6. Something that would shock you and stupefy you. Something that would blow your mind because I would have thought with this much chaos on the personal level, family level, urban level, international level, that we could blame all of this on the devil. But verse 6 says, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. That seems to be out of sorts. The world is a hot mess. And instead of it being blamed on the devil, God says, blame me. For God troubled them with every kind of distress, all manner of chaos. And God says, you can blame me. Now, suffice it to say, if God is your problem, it doesn't matter who you elect. If God is your problem, only God is your solution. Because nobody can stop God but God. For God troubled them with every kind, all manner of distress. We spend a lot of time trying to mop up our messes and our distresses, whether they be personal or familial or cultural. But the stopper in the sink in this passage is God. But it was manifesting itself in society. So God caused it, so the spiritual was behind it, 
but the physical was manifesting it. I would like to submit to you for your theological consideration that what you and I have been going through, are going through, is the passive wrath of God. Now, why do I call it the passive wrath of God? Because in the Old Testament, there is the active wrath of God. This is where God shows his displeasure against sin by directly addressing it. So he rains down fire and brimstone for Sodom and Gomorrah. He floods the earth with Noah. He opens up the earth to judge Korah, where God directly comes down and expresses his anger against sin. But in the New Testament, something happens. The death of Jesus Christ in history, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, has reconciled God to the world. The world has been reconciled to God so that now, post the Old Testament, in this new covenant age, there is the passive wrath of God. What do we mean? It is expressed in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And then he says in verse 24, 26, and 28, the same phrase. For God turned them over. For God turned them over thrice. For God turned them over. In other words, God released men to live life without him. The passive wrath of God is not fire and brimstone being rained down like it was in the Old Testament. It is God saying, since you don't want me, I'm going to let you experience life without me. Therefore, it becomes the natural repercussions of the dismissal of God from a life, from a home, from a community, or from a culture. It becomes the natural repercussions of the absenteeism of God's manifest presence in an environment. So what you are seeing in our culture, our country, and perhaps even in your home or your life is what it looks like when there is a distance between God and a person or a people. Putting it another way, the closer the God of the Bible is to a situation, the more ordered the situation will become. The further God is from a situation, the more chaotic the situation will be. So while you may be able to manage a situation because of certain tools you have, education you have, economics you possess, relationships that you know, you can create managerial aspects to a situation 
What you can't get is divine assistance. Unless the presence of God is connected to it. For God troubled them with every kind of distress. That was the root of the problem. That was the stopper in the sink. And we have spent an inordinate amount of times in our lives and in our world with sophisticated mops. Well-funded mops. If I weren't in the ministry, I'd probably become a secular psychiatrist or psychologist because then I could charge people $300 an hour to tell them why they need to come back next week. <laughs> because you can, you can get some mops that look like they ought to be able to fix this mess. Now the question now that we understand what the stopper is, God had caused the distress. The question is, what was it that caused God to cause the distress? In other words, if the problem is the absenteeism of God and his manifest presence in a situation, what led to it? We're given three reasons in verse 3 that led to the distress that the people were experiencing personally in their families when they went home and culturally, whether it's city or nation. We're given three reasons. First of all, we're told in verse 3, there was no true God. He did not say there was no religion. He did not say there was no God. He said there was no true God. In other words, the God that they were purporting was not the same God that is in the scripture. They were following false religion. When you are operating on a wrong view of God, it does not matter how often you use his name. His name must be backed up by the right definition of his person and his purpose. It says there was no true God. We live in a day with what I call God on uh, the loop. You know, in most cities, like our community, there are loops of highways that go around the city. They are close enough to give you access, but far enough that you're at least not bothered about downtown traffic that would take you to City Hall. What we want is God on the loop, close enough to look respectable, far enough not to be bothered with. We don't want him downtown where legislation is made. We want him but close enough so that we are respectable. When my wife, Lois, was alive um, on one occasion, she asked me to go to Walmart to get some things from, for her on a Saturday morning when uh, she was not going to be able to get to 
the store. Now you have to understand, I hate anything with Mart in its name. <laughs> if Mart is in its name, I don't want to deal with it. But on this particular time, I went, now I wanted to get there early, get all the stuff she needed, and then call it quits. But when I arrived at this particular Walmart, the rest of Dallas had beaten me there. I mean, the, the um, parking lot was jammed packed with cars. So I'm a little surprised because I got there as soon as it opened. I went in, the long lines, I got what I needed to get, stood in lines, and I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out why are all these people here? Then I discovered Walmart was having a store-wide sale. So people had shown up to get their goods at reduced prices. It dawned on me, well, that's our problem. We want God, we just want him on discount. As long as I can get God cheaply, I'll get all the God I can handle, but the moment he comes at full price, I'll shop elsewhere. We want a dumbed down version of God. Now, the Bible has a word for this. It's a, it's a, um, it is the dominant sin of Scripture. If you were to pick one sin that overrules all the other sins in Scripture, there would be one at the top of the list, and it would always be the sin of idolatry. An idol is any noun, person, place, thing, or thought, that you look to as your source. It is any noun person, place, thing, or thought that you look to as your source. Now, idols were not just things that, that existed. They were things that existed that you looked to to do something for you. Idols had a purpose in Scripture. Whether it was fertility or whether it was weather or whether it was uh, 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 health, they looked to the idol to do something. The idol became a source the reason that there was no true God is because there was false gods. And these false gods allowed you to use God's name but trust in them as their source. Now, we do not have idols like in third world countries. We have um, American idols. <laughs> Sophisticated idolatry. For example... Race can become an idol. But some of the conflicts that we are having today racially is because of the idolatry of race. Where my identity or your identity is more tied to skin color than to Christ. Black is only beautiful when it's biblical and white is only right when it agrees with holy writ. Peter found out Gentiles knew how to cook. He had been raised kosher. But then he had this vision in Acts. Pig feet, hog maws, chitlins, <laughs> neck bones, I mean, stuff he hadn't eaten before. 
And God says, it's okay to eat it. Now he says, not me. God told him, don't call unclean what I call clean. Go over there with the Gentiles. I know you're not used to them. I know you weren't raised with them. I know that, but, but this is a new day. You go over there. He goes to Cornelius and revival breaks out. And then we find him in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, eating at the soul shack. <laughs> he didn't cross the railroad tracks. He's on the, he's on the other side of town, and he's eating with them and having a good time with the Gentiles until it says some of his race showed up. It says some of the Jews showed up and intimidated their leader. It says that Peter got up and left the Gentiles because of the Jews. He didn't want to offend his race. So you can imagine how the Gentiles felt. We were good enough for you to eat with us until your people showed up. But now that your people showed up and you're intimidated by them, now you've segregated yourself. It says even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Not Barney, anybody but Barney. I mean, Barnabas is an encourager. Barnabas is born in Cyprus. Cyprus is a Gentile colony. So he was born with Gentiles, raised with Gentiles, went to school with Gentiles, played ball with Gentiles. But that's how bad racism is. It'll make a good man bad. It says Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And so Barnabas gets up too. And they would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for Paul showing up for some chitlins too. Paul shows up and Paul says in Galatians 2, when I saw what Peter did, I condemned Peter before them all. I didn't hold a workshop on sensitivity. I can't I didn't ask, can we all get along? I ain't do none of that. He says, I condemned Peter before them all. And he says, I condemned him because he insulted, watch this, the truth of the gospel. Well, wait a minute. Peter's already going to heaven. Peter's already saved. Peter's already a believer. What do you mean the truth of the gospel? Because there's the content of the gospel that takes you to heaven, but there's the scope of the gospel which brings heaven to earth. And he was messing with the scope of the gospel. And that's why Paul tells him in a verse that is very rarely related to the story, but this verse comes at the end of this story, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I as Christ who lives in me, the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Peter, this is your new identity. You too Jewish. You too Jewish. It's technically incorrect to say you're a black Christian or white Christian because then you make black and white an adjective, you make Christian a noun. The job of the adjective is to modify the noun. So if you have Christianity in the adjectival position and your color in the noun position, you got to keep changing the noun and uh, you got to keep changing it to fit the adjective. You have to have uh, your description as a Christian and that must define your identity. But we've become so identified racially that we become idolatrous. And that's a false god. There's the idol of politics. That has trumped the true God. We have allowed politics to divide the church. 
as though God rides the backs of donkeys or elephants. I mean, Joshua chapter five, Joshua comes out. He's doing reconnaissance around the walls of Jericho. This huge guy with an army shows up. Joshua's mama ain't raised no dummy. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you on our side? Because then you're going to help us fight them. Or are you on their side? You're going to help them fight us. So before I go out here and make a fool of myself, whose side are you on? The captain looked at me and said, uh, uh, excuse me, I'm neither on your side nor am I on their side. I'm captain of the Lord's army. I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. Our problems are not going to be solved by Air Force One. Not if God has caused the distress. We've got folks who are more Republican than Christian, more Democrat than Christian, rather than being kingdom-minded representatives of the cross. And you can go on and on. These are sophisticated idols of materialism, of, of, of any kind of ism that you got to make a wisdom. Because it is interfered with the true God. Okay, so that's problem number one. What's problem number two? Why was there a problem with the true God? He says in verse three, because there were no teaching priests. He didn't say there were no priests. He says they weren't talking about nothing. And they miss in the pulpit will lead to a fog in the pew. We would not have this mess in our culture if we had better pulpits. It says there were no teaching priests. There were plenty of priests, but they were not communicating divine truth. The word of God was not the standard by which communication took place. If you came to me and said, my life is falling apart, it is in shambles, I would listen to you. I would then take the Bible and show you what God says about your problem. Then I would join you and ask the Holy Spirit to apply through your obedience the supernatural enablement to deal with whatever we were talking about. If you brought your family to me and told me my marriage, my family relationships are unraveling, I would take the same Bible that I use with the individual, hear the need, show you what scripture says about what the solution was, give you practical steps of obedience, ask the Holy Spirit to engage your obedience to bring about the resolution of your family discord. If a pastor brought his deacons to me and said, our church is falling apart, I take the same Bible, I would hear the need, I would give practical solutions to apply what the Bible says about the situation and invite the Holy Spirit to empower that obedience to bring about the solution to the church conflict. If you brought the White House and the Congress to me, 
I'm not changing books. See, we got Christians and preachers who are changing books. The Bible says God created government, Romans 13, and every ordinance of God is to be applied to government. You don't switch books. He says there were no teaching priests. The word of God was not the standard. For many years, I was chaplain of the Cowboys and uh, my son Jonathan, when he finished his football career at Baylor and a few years in the NFL, he came and he uh, has now taken over that role and he's so he's the chaplain for the Cowboys, which shows you when they don't listen to the Evans family, what happens. <laughs> there is a conflict in every football game. It lasts for three hours. There's a three-hour conflict on the gridiron. For three hours, they are going to be at each other's throat. It is the nature of the environment. Those two teams are not going to get along. You can negotiate it. You can even have prayer over it. But for three hours, they're not listening. Because for three hours, they have two different goals in mind. One has a goal this way. The other has a goal that way. Because they're not headed in the same direction. So they are not going to agree. But in the midst of this conflict, there is this third team, team of officials. These are seven officials, seven officials. Those seven officials don't belong to either team. They're very distinguished because they got a red, uh, uh, a white and black uh, a jersey on. You know, because they belong to 345 Park Avenue in New York, where the NFL offices are. See, those seven officials represent in Dallas the kingdom that is in New York. See, New York has a kingdom that is the NFL offices. All of those seven are simply representatives of another kingdom in the middle of a conflict. Each one of the officials has been handed a book this book gives the governing guidelines by which all decisions are to be made on the field of play. They understand something. Each of these officials understand something. Sometimes we are going to be booed because they ain't going to like what we come up with. Sometimes we're going to be cheered because the home team crowd or one of the teams is going to like what we come up with. But we're not here for a popularity contest. We're here for one reason, and that is to make a ruling on this field by the book we were given from above. Now, there are only seven guys. There are only seven guys. There's 53 guys on this team and 53 guys on that team plus the coaches. Terribly outnumbered. But they carry with them kingdom authority because they got a whistle and a yellow flag. 
So even though they outnumbered, their say-so matters. We are outnumbered in this secular pagan America. We are terribly outnumbered. But I believe Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. You got the whistle and the flag. What we have not created are biblical disciples who understand that the Bible is the voice of God in print. But we do like we did do, you know, I don't, I'm not into apples. Apples are not my fruit. Enough choice. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't choose an apple first. I'm more of an orange banana guy. Well, most of the time I don't like apples except at the Texas State Fair. I love them apples because them are candy apples at the Texas State Fair. That's apples dipped in liquid sugar. So, so those apples are good. But my doctor tells me every time I eat those, like I cancel out the benefit because of the sugar. See, what we do is we come to church and hear the word of God and then we dip it in human opinion. And we wonder why the word doesn't work because it's been compromised with human wisdom. There are two answers to every question. God's answer and everybody else's and everybody else is wrong. God has spoken and he has not stuttered. He speaks authoritatively, lovingly, but definitively. The job of the preacher is to create biblical disciples who operate under the rule of God in every area of life. Our theme in all of our books, kingdom man, kingdom woman, kingdom single, kingdom marriage, raising kingdom kids, kingdom disciple, kingdom stewardship, the kingdom agenda, all of that is tied to one thing, and that is the rule of God over every area of life. There is no such thing as secular and sacred. For the serious Christian, everything becomes sacred because all of life belongs to him. So there's no, no, there's no such thing as this is my secular anything. You're sacred everything. But because we have bifurcated Christianity, convenient Christianity, not bibliocentric Christianity, we do not see impact. How can we have all these churches on all these corners, all these preachers, all these members, all these programs, all these resources, and still have all this mess? There's a dead monkey on the line somewhere. He says there were no teaching priests. The church had failed. And trust me, God is not going to skip the church house to fix the White House. He always starts with the church first. And based on what he sees in this house will determine what he does in that house. There was a third problem. He said there was no law. There was no law. In other words, people made up their own rules. Isn't that what's happening today? 
We got no rules, new rules, your rules, my rules. It's my truth. It ain't the truth. Truth is an absolute standard by which reality is measured. So when you do not have a divine standard, you have no law. There is no governance that superintends human opinion. When my kids were growing up, they would often come home and I would say something and they would say, but I think, excuse me? <laughs> you think. We regularly tell God what we think when we've heard what he said. You don't, you don't get to think when he speaks. You get to adjust radically. But there was no law. There was no governance. Everybody was doing what was right. And like in the book of Judges, in their own eyes, they were making up their own rules. And so there was chaos. There was no peace to the individual, the family, the community. No peace. We're in a theological crisis, a spiritual crisis. And yes, it's reflecting itself in race and politics and economics and families. And yeah, it's, a, it's showing up there. But God has troubled them with every kind of distress. So is there a solution? I call this divine disruption. Throughout the scripture, whenever God was needing to reorient and reorganize and reset things, he would disrupt it first. He would shake and bake it. He would, he would create or allow for things to get out of sorts. But he would do it in order to reset it. So either we're on the verge of the second coming of Christ because of the worldwide nature of all the pandemics or he's doing a major reset. Well, we have nothing to say about the former because that's in God's hands, but we have everything to say about the latter if it's a reset in history and in culture and in our nation. And the answer is given to us in verse 4. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. Hmm. In their distress, when stuff got bad enough, long enough. Wait a minute. That's the same thing we read in verse 6. For God troubled them with every kind of distress. Verse 4 says, in their distress. What distress? The distress that God caused. In their distress, they prepared. That's what you're doing this week as you start the year off. You are preparing for God to intervene in your life, in your circumstances, in your world, in the world, through fasting and prayer, 
so that he can resolve the distress. In their distress, they sought the Lord God of Israel. What was the problem? The problem was there was no true God. But notice how God is referred to in verse 4, the Lord God of Israel. Notice we got two different names for God. You got Yahweh and Elohim. Elohim is his power name. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Capital O, capital R, capital D is Yahweh. That's his relational name. So when you put the two together, it's the powerful God within whom or with whom you have a relationship. You remember when Satan tempted Eve, he said, hath God said. He doesn't mind you using God as long as you don't use Lord. So he'll keep religion as long as there's no relationship. But when they return to the Lord God of Israel, what made them return? Stuff got bad in their distress. Stuff got horrific in their distress. When I met my wife, she was 18 years old. Beautiful young lady, but there was a problem. She was not responding at the rate to which I was accustomed. <laughs> Girlfriend was moving a little slow. She wasn't, she wasn't, she wasn't working with her brother. So I'm from Baltimore. I took her to an amusement park in Baltimore called Gwen Oaks Amusement Park. And at this amusement park, there was a roller coaster for two called the Wild Mouse. So it did all the stuff roller coasters do, but then it would shoot out like it was going to jump off and then turn real quick. I said, two tickets, please. <laughs> we got on the Wild Mouse and she got in distress. The wilder the ride got, the closer she got. By the time the ride was over, you thought only one person got on it. Why did I take her on that ride? Because I had to help her with her response. And she responded for almost 50 years. God will cause distress in their distress. In their distress, they cried out to the Lord. They sought the Lord and he let them find him. In other words, this is hide and go seek when he wanted to be found. He let them find him because he wanted them looking for him. God offered Moses a great blessing He said, Moses, there's the promised land. Go ahead. Milk and honey, all that good stuff. There's blessing over there. Moses said, if you don't go, I'm not going. If I, don't, if I can't go with you, I ain't going. That was a test. Do you want the blessing or the blesser? In your pursuit this few days, you have needs, you have distresses, you have prayer requests, you have things that you are after, and that's legit. Just don't go after the blessing and, and lose sight of the blesser. 
Don't go after what you can get and forget the giver of the gift. In their distress, they sought him. But their problem was lack of peace, conflict. That was their problem, but they sought him. And he let them find him. was a day that will live in infamy in our country because we were invaded and life will never be the same in terms of security because 19 men from halfway around the world invaded our nation and brought us to our knees. 19 men in the name of their God changed our nation forever. So help me out. If 19 men in the name of the wrong God can change a nation forever, what do you think thousands of men and women who are fully committed to Jesus Christ can do when they are on fire for him? So in your days of fasting and prayer, when you feel the pains of hunger, they are to remind you, me and us, to be hungry for him. Because when we pursue him, he knows about the needs, the conflicts, the struggles, but he's more than enough to meet you and us. If Christ be not come to show us what God can do in meeting us at our deepest need. May God bless you richly as you pursue him during this time of prepare. As you fast and pray for his presence and having gotten that, enjoyed his blessing. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Jesus, please don't hesitate to reach out through our website at milestonechurch.com. And if you found this podcast helpful, leave a review on the podcast app or your favorite podcast platform. We hope you have a great week.